This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Right. In case you were still doubting whether or not children can or should be spared from deep sedation and immobility, today we have Aaron Gates and Sarah Ehlerman, who are pediatric physical therapists from a team in Ohio. We are so grateful for incredible pediatric teams that are willing to dream and work so hard to improve outcomes for our children. Sarah, Aaron, I am so excited to have you guys on. Will you introduce yourselves? Yes. I am Erin. I am a pediatric physical therapist, and I have been in the field now for about eight years. And I'm here with my partner, Sarah. Yes, and I'm Sarah, and I am also a pediatric physical therapist, and I have worked in a hospital for 12 years. And so tell me about kind of what specialty you guys work in and what your role in the ICU team is. We um, are both pretty passionate about working in our ICUs. We both um, work in our regular PICU as well as our specific cardiothoracic ICU. And our role within the early mobilization team is working as physical therapists to help coordinate early mobility throughout the day. And so what was the culture like, let's say at the beginning of your careers, you guys have been doing this for a while. What was it like before and what evolution have you witnessed throughout the years? So before we started our early mobility program, a lot of our patients, I think like the same as in a lot of other institutions, our patients were sedated and in bed when they were in the ICU and therapy was really just range of motion and positioning. And then once patients were out of the ICUs, when we really started moving, since we have started um, our early mobility program, there have been many more patients who are getting up and moving now while they're still in the ICU. And how did this come about? What brought the change? We were noticing a change in the landscape of the adult literature. So we were seeing a lot of this early mobility success, both, you know, hearing it anecdotally through people that we knew in the field, as well as reading it in the literature. So for us, we thought, you know, why not? Why not in peds? We see these kids and we are seeing these prolonged length of stays and we're seeing how hard it is to rehab them back and the deconditioning. And, you know, we're recommending inpatient rehab for them or even outpatient therapies. So we're like, you know, why can't we start this earlier, like in adults? So we sought at that point to, you know, can we get a champion behind us? Can we get physician support? Which we were able to do. You know, we were able to show that literature specifically to our cardiothoracic ICU. They were really progressive and they were ready to jump on board with us. So we got a um, physician champion and we worked on establishing some guidelines and we really put it forward to try to make it culture in that CTICU first to create some buy-in. And we were, we were there for a year. We got, we were very successful. We got kids moving early and often, and nurses were kind of taking that over, being able to facilitate mobility outside of therapy times, which was great. 
And at the end of all of that, we got some great outcomes. You know, we got shorter ICU length of stay, shorter overall length of stay, shorter time intubated. And we were seeing a decrease in our outpatient therapy referrals, which was great. So we were able to kind of mitigate those effects of bed rest while um, they were here with us. So that way we didn't have to necessarily get them referred as outpatients, which was wonderful. That is so powerful. And how are you tracking your data? Well, we have a lot of data coming in. We actually, as therapists ourselves, we fill in our flow sheets every time we see a patient, as well as we have just our conglomerate of data hospital-wide that we're able to access through our IRB that we have. And then we also are able to just kind of look at general nursing data. So our patients moving outside of therapy times, they track that um, every hour, every two hours, depending on the ICU. So that way we can see that kids are actually getting up during those times, not, not just in therapy. And what, what facilitated or what sparked that nursing buy-in? I feel like that was probably one of our biggest challenges was to really show them the evidence and the changes we were making. Like Erin said, our CTICU was much more progressive than our normal pediatric ICU. And those nurses were very on board with, let's get up, let's get moving. We're going to do developmental activities during the day. We're going to let parents be involved and hold and do kangaroo care. So I think once we got nurses on board in the cardiothoracic ICU, we could really show our nurses in the PICU that this can be done and it can be safe. We started sending out like a weekly email with like early mobility wins and calling out like the great things we were doing, putting pictures in when parents said it was okay. And I think those stories and really hearing like what could be successful and what was going well was super helpful and making our whole program successful. Oh, I like that. Like specific stories, real life application, not just these big broad concepts with no educational support as to how to do it. So on that note, what kind of case studies could you give us or what success stories have made your jaws drop? We've had a lot of good success stories, a lot of really individual wins when you are in a room with a patient and, you know, we're sitting them up while intubated and we get grandma on FaceTime and she's able to sing her favorite song to a patient or, you know, we are, are sitting up or getting to mom's lap and able to do someone's hair, you know, a toddler's hair and get them into those pigtails that we want to get done because they've been on um, bed rest for a few days or those big wins when we're getting these babies up to parents' arms, specifically to mom's arms as soon as she gets to the hospital for the first time. Those are some of our really, really big wins for our little ones. I think for some of our more critical patients, even, even like letting parents hold babies who are on ECMO, who are on like these higher levels of support. So it's really hard, I think, for parents to feel involved with those patients. So as long as they can hold and cuddle or even lay beside them in bed, I think those are big wins for parents. And it's important that they feel more involved and that they can still be a parent even when their child is really sick. Absolutely. I'm kind of in and out of the hospital with my daughter all the time right now. And I sleep in the crib with her. And I just, I get emotional just trying to think of her being on a ventilator and not even like opening her eyes or connecting with me. That would be super traumatizing for me, mm-hmm. even when she's sick and she's not herself. We just miss her being herself. So I'm sure it's extremely therapeutic for everyone involved, but especially for kids. When do kids go days without being held or touched or cuddled or hearing voices? How have your sedation practices changed in order to facilitate that kind of connection? That's a great question. As 
As the program is continuing to evolve, we definitely see some more changes and some more progressive sedation changes. It still is kind of dependent. Sometimes we have some kids that are definitely really awake or, you know, at least able to participate. And then there's still those some kids that they definitely want to use some sedation for safety. But for these kids that we can, you know, talk to and say, hey, you know, you have that tube in your mouth. Let's make sure we don't pull that. Parents are at bedside and we can interact with them. It's been really, really successful to keep them awake, especially when they can see the kid is calm and playing and able to communicate. You know, recently I had a little one who was communicating via signing. And to continue that communication, you know, mom asked, you know, can we decrease that sedation? And it happened. And that little one was able to stay awake and communicate via signing the entire time. And that was wonderful and super cathartic for mom and super cathartic for the little one, which was great. I know the adults, when you wean down sedation, you see this crazy agitation and just pure terror. Do you see that in kids as well when they've been sedated and you take down sedation? Does delirium look the same? like that in kids? I think for a lot of our kids, yes, it kind of does look the same. I think where it's better for us though, is that kids find a lot of comfort, especially the little ones being held by their parents. So being, then being able to get up and even just something as simple as being held in the chair for two hours, seems to do wonders for our kids who are kind of coming off that sedation or having a little bit of delirium, but like like mom and dad are something that's very constant and that is just super calming for them. They can keep them in a safe space and kind of try to work through some of that coming off of sedation. One of our most important things with early mobilization when we start to educate families, you know, when we first get in those rooms is delirium prevention and providing reorientation and familiar items from home and, and working on that from the beginning, step one. So that way we can have parents feel autonomous to get up to that bedside and, and say, you know, you are safe. I am here with you. Here is Blanky or here is your favorite stuffed animal. And that just provides that extra little bit of calming to have those parents there and able to do that, which is really great. Yeah. And there's so many obviously parallels to adults when they're under sedation. Survivors have talked about these feelings of isolation and loneliness and fear and just lack of connection. And I just, it mortifies me to think of kids experiencing that, experiencing that for prolonged amounts of time. And that's got to be a huge catalyst for PTSD, no matter how vivid or explicit their hallucinations are just those feelings of isolation are really damaging to kids. How often do you have parents advocating to have sedation decreased or having nurses be eager to get sedation off? I feel like more recently, we've had more parents asking not to use as much sedation so that the children are more awake and are able to participate more in play and communication and things of that nature. I definitely feel like over the past year or so, we've seen more parents advocating for that. Is that because well as our the nursing staff you provide? I would like to think yes, it's from our <laughs> education that we provide. But we also know that there's so much more research out there, even if it is mostly in adults and everybody likes to look things up on Google. So maybe parents are even kind of doing a little bit of their own research too and seeing what's best for their child while they're in this critical state. That's great. Yeah. In the beginning with our, especially for our little ones, we really try to advocate for um, when we go in and see these little ones during care times. 
So those are the times we know they get the most agitated and the most frustrated when they're getting unswaddled. So we really try to educate those families on, you know, you can be that calming force during care times. You can provide this containment opportunity or, you know, this way to keep them calm and keep them um, involved in their child's care in a safe way. But still then we see that possible decrease in sedation because they won't have to give that extra bolus during that care time. You know, do can we have a parent or a therapist keep them calm during that time? And that has been a really successful thing that we've seen for really, really young ones. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. Boy, I just, the exchange is so impactful. I'm just imagining trading off actual human connection for sedation is really exchanging a non-pharmacological option for post-ICU dementia in a child. I mean, you, the parents, I'm sure they don't really understand the role that they're playing, but they are potentially sparing their children post-ICU dementia, post-ICU PTSD. I mean, that is huge for my daughter who her cognitive function is her strongest function, right? Are you going to measure cognitive outcomes or what do you have down the pipeline? That's a great question. We actually are working in our post ICU clinic right now. And originally we were just collecting those fine and gross motor outcomes to see longitudinally what is occurring with these um, kiddos that have come out of our ICU. And now more recently within the past six months have started to collect cognitive outcomes. So on our Bailey developmental screening test, we are looking at, you know, what is happening, gross motor, fine motor, and now cognitive to see that impact and trying to get these kids as much therapy as early on and as often to try to, you know, mitigate anything that is happening long-term for them. And even if you haven't had anything analyzed, are there any trends that you're seeing? I haven't seen any trends yet, just because it's been so such a short amount of time, but I am, you know, just anecdotally seeing things from, especially prior to initiating or we are our early mobilization really becoming culture. We were seeing these kids that, you know, needed follow-up and needed, you know, had a decrease in significant decrease in speech. Like I can remember one little kiddo who definitely required a lot more sedation or was using quite a bit of sedation and in the end had significant speech delay and no longer was using any words about, you know, three, four months after leaving our ICU. And so that was just such a profound story that really made us all be like, you know, we really need to mobilize more. We really need to get these kids to decrease the sedation and get them more active and, and participating in all of this. So, and has that become part of your discussion um, amongst all members or disciplines of the team as far as, hey, let's bring off sedation so we prevent these consequences? Is that part of 
the culture now, part of the discussion? Is everyone aware of this? I think everybody's becoming more aware of it. I think it's being discussed much more during rounds and at the bedside for patients. I definitely think there's always room to improve and always room to get better when it comes to helping prevent delirium in these patients. I just always wonder if we're really doing an adequate risk versus benefit measurement when we don't include all these long-term repercussions. And so I'm always curious what teams are discussing when they're discussing sedation. You know, if we increase it now, if we don't decrease it today, what could that mean later? I think if all members of the team understood, everyone would be on board with being aggressive and getting that sedation off. What other kiddos have you seen? What, what other success stories as far as kids that are awake, calm, walking on the ventilator or playing on the ventilator, whatever the capacity is? I think a lot of the success that we do see is getting our kiddos with, whether they're on BiPAP or intubated, getting down to the play mat, you know, bringing in one of those typical therapy benches that you would see in a PT session and allowing them the opportunity to work on, you know, sitting at the bench or pulling to stand at the bench or, you know, we're, but we're right next to the bedside next to that vent so they can stay nice and safe, but, and then having the opportunities to have toys around them to explore and feel like just a typical play environment for them feels like a big win. We, we tend to utilize that a lot specifically with our toddlers and has been really successful. I think most people couldn't even imagine that, <laughs> right? I'm sure you got some crazy looks when you proposed this. Absolutely. Yeah. Was there a lot of terror and, and doubt? Yes. Yeah. I think the first step was even asking for play mats for our ICUs was just a big shock at first. So. <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah. Why would you need a play mat? Yeah. Right. They're on a ventilator. Yeah. Yes. I think it takes a while for people to realize that like kids are still kids, even when they're in the ICU. Like they want to play, they want to have fun. If their bodies move, then they can get better rest later. Like we all know that when we have our kids at home. So even though kids are sick, they're still kids and they still want to move and play and have fun. And it's a huge coping mechanism, right? That they need a distraction from everything that's going on. And if they're just laying in bed, one in delirium and having terrible hallucinations, that's one thing, but also if they're awake and they're just staring at the wall and all the machines and the strangers, like who doesn't need a good distraction? And if adults yeah. get to be on their phones, texting or watching a movie or whatever on the ventilator, kids should be able to do their kid stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. And the first time you walked a kid on a ventilator, what was that like? It's amazing to have a patient who has just got a transplant or has been in the hospital for a while and to show them that like, even though I have this tube in my mouth, like I can still get to the edge of the bed and I can still stand and I can do squats and I can walk down the hall. And, you know, they always get, you know, an applause from the other nurses and the other physicians in the hallway because everybody is so excited about it. So I think it's super motivating for our patients to be able to do that. And how has that changed the, your personal fulfillment in your career and even just the tone in the team? I think it's given us a lot of gratification. I mean, when you can leave those rooms and you've seen a smile on, you know, not only the kiddos face because, you know, you've changed the course of their day, but also seeing those parents and how you've allowed them the opportunity to see their kid be a kid and give them kind of a little bit of control in such an out of control environment to give them some autonomy there. It's, it's such a big game changer and makes you feel like, wow, I made a difference today. This is huge. So not only like just personal gratification in our career, but 
you know, seeing the growth of our program, you know, we've gotten a lot of acknowledgement from, you know, being able to do national presentations to, to teach others and show that this is possible. This is a big deal and we can do this. We can change the game in peds and let these kids, let them play and let them move and do all the kids things they want to do. It sounds like this is the future of, of pediatric critical care. <laughs> we would like to believe so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yes. Sorry, Sarah, what were you going to say? Oh, I'm just going to say, in addition to what Aaron said, like we love presenting and sharing everything we're doing, but there's nothing better than being in a room and helping a patient move who's intubated or on ECMO. And the parents say like, oh, this is the first time they smiled since they've mm-hmm. been here. Like there's nothing better than a therapist to hear that during the day. Like, oh, they're smiling. Like this is the best, even though they're working hard and even though they're doing something that's completely new for our staff, that's always the best outcome. Okay. This is why I couldn't do pediatrics. (laughs) I just cry at everything. Um, And this is hitting a, a spot because my daughter's had some neurological changes this past week and then the past few days she started to improve and after spending you know a week wondering if she would be herself again not knowing what was going on with her but to see her smile it just bathes your soul with relief yeah and I'm sure and I know actually parents come out with PTSD I've had moments with my own daughter I had to bag her she got oral versed and uh, didn't do well with it and it, whole long story but it was I was, I had to bag my own child. So that was really scary. And when I passed by that room, it, it was in a pre-op room. We've had surgery since when I passed by it, it just, this fear comes back to me. It's, and it's, it's a trigger. And so I just relate to that so much of seeing your child smile and having that glimmer of hope or just that connection to just knowing that they're still there. And I imagine that's even more so when they're on a ventilator and they're, you know, not medical and they think that they're they're fearing that their child is dying, but when they get to see them smile, they get to know that they're still there and they're still their child. Like that, I think any parent can appreciate how important that is. And that's our goal. You know, we don't want the parent to feel like they're losing their child through any of this and, and making sure that they can stay, you know, as awake as they can and alert as they can and have, you know, a normal day playing and interacting. And then you know, a normal night's sleep. That's our, that's our big goal to try to, you know, decrease that delirium, decrease that deconditioning and get these kids back to being kids as soon as possible. And back to being themselves. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't have brain injuries after an infection or after, you know, other complications, they shouldn't lose the potential for the rest of their lives because of a few weeks or a few days in the ICU. That's Mm -hmm. huge. Well, anything else you would share with teams that want to make this change since this is so cutting edge in the pediatric world? <laughs> I'd say just keep remember, you know, let kids be kids. Kids are still kids. It can happen. We can make this change, you know, give it a chance. And, you know, kids are, they can be reasonable. You can talk to them about, you know, what we expect of them and, you know, keep them engaged in toys and, keep them interacting with their families. And it is possible. We can get these kids to move and stay awake and be safe and have success. And I'm putting you guys on the spot, but if a pediatric ICU team wants to start this and wants to have 
let's say a webinar, a presentation, would you guys be interested in doing that? Absolutely. We always are. Okay. Well, if it's okay, we'll put your contact information on the blog. Any pediatric studies that are out there that you guys enjoy or appreciate and we'll just keep everyone connected so everyone can get on the same page and move forward. That's great. The, the biggest network we can have of success with our peds PT and acute care. I mean, that is the best thing ever. It's such a niche. And so there's such a need for us to all get together and work together to be successful. Absolutely. And, and I think especially pediatric providers get into it because they love kids and they want to get their lives back to them. And so I think you're going to find a lot of people are eager to make these changes. So thanks so much, ladies. Thanks. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com. <laughs>